Hey awesome people, welcome to episode 16 of the second season of Lantern, where a podcast about young people trying to change the world and trying to understand what that actually means. This fortnight, we're sitting down with Helen Bapp, who's the founder and CEO of Yes Get It, which is an organization that empowers and equips women with the self-awareness, confidence, and practical tools to be bold and powerful leaders. She's also a senior associate of inclusion and engagement in the corporate responsibility team at the National Australia Bank. So given all that, we discuss the importance of creating spaces for women to connect, grow and support each other, determining where social impact sits in your career pathway and personal development journey, and the role of corporate social responsibility in driving social change. So I hope you enjoy this one. So my name is Helen Babb. Um, I wear two hats at the moment. So I work in corporate responsibility at National Australia Bank, and I focus on inclusion and engagement there. And I'm also the founder and CEO of an organization called Yes, Get It. And what those two things have in common is I'm passionate about equality and justice, specifically relating to marginalized groups, including women, so gender equality. So what sparked that passion for you? I think it really started with my mum. So my mum was born in Taiwan in quite a large family. She was the youngest. And I think from a young age, she was told that her education wasn't as important as other people's education. And she was this really fiery, rebellious young woman. She mm. kind of skipped out of school and would play basketball with the boys and wore a leather jacket and did all those things that were kind of pushing the norms of society in Taiwan. And so when she, yeah, when she came to Australia, she actually met my dad in Taiwan and came over here. They originally moved to Western Australia where there she wasn't, it wasn't very common to see people of Asian descent. And she always just had this passion for fighting for things, especially for women, to be treated exactly the same as everyone else. And so when I think of my most inspirational person, I think of her. She is really like so smart, so talented, but she never got told that. And so it actually has only really been in later in life, since she retired and um, can explore all these amazing things that she's talented at, that she really truly believes it. She just became a celebrant. So if anybody needs a celebrant, you know, <laughs> she does, you know, calligraphy classes, yeah. dancing, she's in a choir, she joined a, a public speaking club, all these things where she said to me, can you believe I did this? And I said, of course I can believe it. You could mm. have always done that, but it's really, you know, something new for her. So yeah. when I think about, you know, where I was born, I was born in such a privileged country, living in Melbourne. I could have easily been born somewhere else without yeah. these opportunities. So was that kind of perhaps like a, a foundational building block of what you've kind of been building with? Yes, get it. Yeah. I think well, I had a good friend of mine. So I lived in DC for about five years and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. A lot of conversations <coughs> in DC are about what's your purpose? What are you driven to do in life? And he said, what's your thing? What's your one thing that mm. you want to be the through line in everything that you do? And if you're not doing it, you're not going to be completely satisfied. And I said, it's always about gender. It's always about equality. It's always about women. And he was like, well, I don't know what my thing is. Can you help me figure out my thing? (laughs) That has really helped drive my decisions in whether it's... So I studied law at Melbourne. I had a couple of favourite subjects. I had a couple of least favourite subjects. But one of my most favourite subjects was legal theory. And it was just about thinking about the law and language and the way things are done in a completely different way, pushing the boundaries. It was you know, kind of philosophy. And it just made me really think, 
oh, there are different ways to do things. It doesn't just have to be the way that they've been done for thousands of years. And then I did subjects like feminist legal theory and gender studies and just really opened my mind to, oh, people don't know these things. Yeah. I know them. <laughs> and also they're having such a huge impact in the world every day. Mm. So are you drawing much on kind of what you studied then in, in your work now? Or is it something you've kind of developed throughout your career? It's a great question. I heard in a podcast once that if you say it's a great question, you say it because you don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good stalling <laughs> technique. <Yeah. laughs> so I realised about three quarters of the way through my arts law degree that I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I had worked in some community legal services. I had worked for small, medium, large firms just to give it a shot. Mm. And I just kept coming back to it just doesn't feel right. And so what I decided to do was use the amazing skills that I was gaining and information and use it in a way that worked for me. So I used my law degree to develop my way of thinking and writing and speaking. And I also used it to travel the world. So through Melbourne, we had great opportunities to go. I did an exchange. I studied in China, Israel. I went and did an internship in the US Congress. And that was really the way that it made sense for me to use my degree, even if I wasn't going to be a lawyer. Mm but to use it to understand how is legislation made, how is policy made, how the power of the law can change so many things, but it's not the only thing. I'm curious, what were the kind of signs for you that our law wasn't really working out, even if you were, say, working in a space like community legal where you are yeah. making an impact? Well, I tried to deny it for a long time. Yeah. So as you can probably imagine, when you have this set path that you have been working your whole life for, so, you know, I was a pretty high-achieving uh, high school student because I put a lot of pressure on myself. And then I went to law school and then everyone there is a high-achieving type A mm. kind of person. Mm. So I was on this path, this path, this path. And I just, I would work and did volunteering and I would always just get this feeling. Like it was just a, this doesn't feel right feeling. Right. And I kept trying to deny it because... I was like, it must be right. This is what I'm meant to be doing. But it would even be, um, I did this paid internship, which was, you know, I had to apply for it. I was excited about it. And my most favorite part of the whole internship was on Fridays, we would get coffees. Right. And I got to go get the coffees. Yeah. And I thought, that's probably not the <laughs> indication of this really quite great internship yeah. Yeah. that people want to do. But my reaction is, I just want to get out. And it was the same when I worked at a big firm. When I lived in Germany, I worked for a firm. And I just remember sitting there, just feeling in my body mm. that something wasn't right. And then I would compare it to something else I was doing, whether it was to do with politics or policy mm. or any type of justice work. And I just, it just felt different. Yeah. So yeah. it's vague, but <laughs> you can't deny it. And I remember when I finally admitted it to myself. I got really upset, actually, because I thought, well, what am I meant to do now? Um, and I was pretty scared to tell anyone. And so my parents, I always thought they'd be pretty okay with it. Right. They've always kind of said, you can do what you want. Um, but I was actually more scared to tell my friends who right. I studied law with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I remember telling a good friend of mine, kind of whispering, <laughs> I don't want to be a lawyer. <laughs> 
And then she said, neither do I. <laughs> and <laughs> it was so, yeah, liberating. Now she ended up starting her own cookbook company and she's a published author and she's amazing. Yeah, wow. And so to have other people in my life who weren't going on that path because it didn't suit them was really great to have. Yeah. Have that example. Yeah, I think you kind of touched on it. But maybe if you had some more thoughts, just if mm. people in this kind of position where they're kind of expected to do a certain thing mm. and say, breaking out and saying, this is not for me, or even saying like, oh, I want to go into the not-for-profit space straight away yeah. or something like that, yeah. or go work overseas or something like that. If you're a young person yeah. kind of considering that, how do you think you should approach it? So that's part of the reason I started Yes, Get It. I kept having conversations with young women in transition points. So when you finish high school, when you're going to further study, when you finish your further study, first job, think I might want to leave my first job, first relationship, all those mm. things. They kept saying to me, I don't know what I want mm. and I don't know what to do next. What's the right decision? And I also don't know who to ask for help. And it kept coming up again and again. So it's not unique to women, obviously. It's for everyone. And I think... Part of a way that I it worked for me, and it might not work for everyone, but I've seen it work really well, is actually getting to know yourself. Who are you? What do you care about? What do you not care about at all? What are you really good at? Because everybody has these amazing skills that someone else doesn't have. Everyone. And so it's really identifying that and also believing it. That's another thing, believing that you have these strengths. And so I'd say a real kind of deep personal work is really important. Mm, mm. So that might be reading particular books or listening to podcasts or just sitting down with no distractions and saying, you know, kind of answering a questionnaire about yourself and then maybe asking other people, mm. you know, your parents, your friends, mentors, what are my strengths? What could I work on? What do I talk about all the time? And you can't shut me up because it doesn't necessarily mean that has to be your exact path. But knowing yourself allows you to figure out what's actually important and what you really want. I was talking to a young woman who said she just graduated. She was a rock star, super smart, amazing. She said, well, my friends think I should do this, grad programs. My parents just want me to get a job that pays me money. I see all these people who are influencers on Instagram and actually I want to go overseas and do this other thing. Nobody thinks this is a good idea. Right. And I said, well, what do you actually want? And she said, well, I actually want to go overseas and do this other thing. And I said, well, who is the only person who can live your life? And she was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't even have to be, you know, going overseas or anything. Mm. But it's about taking that autonomy of mm. your own life. Because you've got to wake up every day and do mm. it. Not you've got to. You have the privilege to wake up every day and do it. And what will kind of fill you up? It might not be the perfect job. My first real job was not the perfect job. It was a step in the right direction. And I knew that the whole mm. time. But I knew a little bit more about where I was going because I knew where I didn't want to go. Mm. So having kind of knocked Laura out, it would come back now and then when I would get scared that I'd never get a job. But having something where I tried it and I knew, no, that's just more data. Like the more things that you try, the more data you have right. and what is and isn't going to work for you. How big a part do you think kind of this, this concept or setting of privilege plays mm -hmm. in this? Just because cognizant of the fact that you, you see a lot of people in the, the social impact space have come from quite privileged backgrounds with 
doesn't mm-hmm. say anything about their, their passion or commitment to the work, but yeah. perhaps just speaks to um, an opportunity to, to try a few different things, take more risks without mm-hmm. feeling, say, a financial pressure to do something yeah. based a bit more traditional. Yeah, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think about that a lot because being committed to something that you're passionate about and that's purposeful doesn't always have financial rewards. Mm. And so it's about making smart decisions for you and getting really clear, I think, on what your priorities are. So absolutely it's not the same for everyone to go overseas or to not do a particular job. But it's about thinking, is this a step in where I want to go or how can I use this to get where I want to be? So I know quite a few people who studied law to save up and then worked as lawyers to save up a certain amount of money because they knew they wanted to switch over to something Mm, else. mm. Or people who were in any type of job where they weren't 100% into it, but didn't... There's this concept of 80-20, of, you know, you can give 80% to your job and do an awesome job, but you keep 20% Mm, for yourself. mm, mm. And what you can do with that other time is explore your other passions or do something that might lead to where you want to go. So absolutely, there are lots of restrictions and barriers. Not everyone can just go not take a certain job. Um, I think it's just about being clear of what you can do with what you have and also priorities. There are some people whose priority it is to, yeah, earn a certain amount of money or own a certain thing, and that's absolutely fine. It's just that everyone's priorities are different. And there are lots of people... I know who worked in the nonprofit space and then said, my priority is financial stability in my health and I can't do it anymore. And then they switch. And if it works for them, it works for them. It's just mm. about kind of weighing things up. Yeah, we've kind of danced around the topic of yeah. what you're doing with Yes, Get It. So why don't we just jump into that and sure. what that's about and what yeah. you're trying to achieve? So I mentioned that I, when I moved to DC, I was connected with this amazing community of women. And I'd never met a group of women like this before. They um, asked me hard questions and they invited me to reflect on myself and my impact in the world. Like what, what impact did I want to have more broadly? Then we also were each other's cheer squads all yep. the time. So when I moved back to Australia, I again was surrounded by just amazing, super smart, awesome women. Instead of having that kind of confidence and that lift from other people and that kind of sense of, you know, we know what direction we're going in. I found that a lot of women were saying to me, I don't know where I am, uh, where I'm going, and I feel very alone. And I actually, it was International Women's Day last year, and I was looking for an event that I would normally go to in DC. Maybe it was part fundraiser, we were focusing on how to use our strength and power to create change, and I really couldn't find anything that I wanted to go to. So mm. I said, okay, I'll just post one yeah um, and luckily my friends some of my friends some of my work colleagues were really eager to come together we did basically a two-hour workshop on vision and goals and then when we finished it, had, it was just this beautiful space of really kind of sharing and openness and and kind of deep reflection and then at the end they said okay when's the uh when's the next one <laughs> yeah and I said oh I, I wasn't planning to do another one right but they really wanted one. And so with Yes, Get It, it's really about creating those safe spaces, in particular, you know, starting off with for women to really come together and learn from each other mm. and to get into those kind of harder questions that we don't always ask ourselves in our 
families or our friendship groups and to feel that support and that community with really tangible tools and strategies as well to help you get where you want to go. So are you setting up similar groups across Australia or how's this work? So at the moment, that pilot which started in March is still running with around the same group of women. And my next step is to release an online course, okay, um, cool. which is about 30 days long with, to allow it to not just be for people in Melbourne. I'm very mm. conscious of shouldn't just be people in a big city who have access to this type of community, as well as having that online aspect, so Facebook, um, Instagram, and creating that community there. But it's really, I kind of describe, I'm like a little seedling with Yes Get It. Like it, the seed is germinating. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still absolutely in early exploration phase. But I haven't spoken to one woman in my in our targeted demographic, which is, which is you know, 17 to 35-ish, so going through a transition that hasn't said, I want this. You know, I want mm. inspirational peers to learn from. I want a space where I can come and be fully myself. I want somewhere that has resources and tools and techniques that actually work. And so I don't have all the answers yet. But yeah, I know yeah. I'm onto a good thing. How do you think this will translate to the online space because it seems what you've kind of experienced and you're building yeah. is something that's very much grounded person to person mm. in the room and sometimes especially with like say online courses it's hard yeah. to have that connection yeah. yeah I'm exploring that at the moment I do absolutely think there needs to be that person element so whether that might be Facebook live or zoom meetings or you have something at the start and at the end with if people can make it they can come together. I think it's important to have that option because, yeah, that personal element is really important. I will say for me, basically half of my life lives in America. And so when you have the connection to go from, using digital tools is actually really smooth, can be really smooth. So it's about combining them as much as possible. So my dream would be to have an opportunity for people to meet wherever they are and have people grouped together and I would love to focus on rural and regional Australia because from what I've heard from women who live in those places there's, there's just nothing focused mm. on women and leadership specifically. Amazing community support but your big events don't go to Bendigo or Ballarat or wherever and so I'd love to be able to provide that. Are you finding that the issue mostly is with people thinking that this is a kind of space that they need and they'll benefit from or is it more getting the message out there because there's just so much stuff out there and getting the attention of young people in particular isn't the yeah. easiest thing. I actually think one of the bigger challenges is convincing people to invest in themselves because people don't necessarily know if they're worth investing in and that is almost like a culture shift or a mindset mm. change of actually your biggest asset is you. And so developing you is really worth your time and energy. It is about cutting through and really getting to the heart of what people are actually dealing with mm. and what they really want for their lives. And sometimes people don't know and they don't want to ask. But most of the time I've found that people, people already have some inklings and they just need the space and the support and the tools to really develop it. If 
these spaces don't exist for people at the moment and someone's looking for that support and they might not see it in their kind of immediate network. Do you have any advice for people to find that community? Yeah, I think reaching out to people who you feel like you either connect with or you might connect with on certain issues is a really great way to do it. So I was actually listening to Daisy's interview. Okay, cool, yeah. And I really like what she said about just reaching out to people because the worst thing they can say is no or have no response. And it still happens to me. I get imposter syndrome like literally everyone else, including Oprah. (laughs) (laughs) Where it's you think, why would someone write back to me or why would they welcome me at an event or Mm. that kind of thing. But when you're really genuine with people and I just want to learn or I'd like to be part of this community or even starting your own thing. I mean, hey, I'm getting this group together. I think we might connect on these things. Would you like to come? I mean, the worst that people can say is no. And then you can just move on and find someone else. But I think reaching out, you know, a lot of the time it's very hard for people to ask for help speaking from experience and also everyone else I know. Mm. But when you are really upfront with people about why, it can be so powerful. Mm. I mean, think of someone asking you for help and saying, I think you're really experienced in this. I'd love to learn from you or I'm so interested to hear from you you and your community. You know, if you have the opportunity, you probably would say yes. Mm. So I think that is important. And also, I'm a huge fan of kind of looking at what the resources are out there. You know, I love Brene Brown. She's like my soul sister. (laughs) And just seeing what what clicks for you. I think are ways for people to connect that might not be super obvious or mainstream, but can be really powerful. Yeah, let's switch gears back to NAB. Um, Yeah, what's, what's your role there? And perhaps tell us a bit about how you got there. So I never, ever, ever thought I would work at a bank. (laughs) So my job in DC, I worked on social change and political advocacy. So we worked on big campaigns, reproductive justice, LGBT equality, racial justice. Part of my job was to protest in front of the Supreme Court. You know, it was really, really amazing experience. And when I decided to move home, I had this thing again of, you know, it's kind of when I graduated from law. I don't know exactly what I want to do, but I have a better idea now of what will and won't work for me. Mm. And so I, uh, my brother actually had worked at NAB and we were talking about different options, you know, government, nonprofit, corporate, mm. those type of things. And he had said, you know, have you thought about corporate social responsibility? And I remember writing it down in my notebook and being like, no, I'm not even going to write it down. I don't <laughs> think it's going to be for me. Yeah. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, oh, maybe I would, maybe. So he said, why mm. don't you have coffee or have a chat with a friend of mine? And I had a good chat with her and she just was really honest with me about mm. the pros and the cons and, you know, the power and the impact she can have and then the challenges. And she said, there's almost never jobs in corporate responsibility. So many people want to do it. Right. And so when I moved home, I was applying for a bunch of things and I um, used a staffing agency and just seeing what was out there and emailed her to get a coffee. And we had coffee and she said, you know how I said there's never any jobs? There's a 12-month maternity leave. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And what I didn't realize, she said, you know, my colleague is the manager for it and talked about the position. What I didn't realize was that she was the manager's manager. 
Oh, when we okay. were having right. a conversation about mm. it, and where I basically said, "Is this thing real? Like, is this <laughs> real?" Yeah. And so when I took the position, can you imagine my friends in like political advocacy in DC? I'm like, I'm gonna go work for a bank, <laughs> <laughs> and my friends here too. They just were like, "Excuse me." <laughs> um, so that's how I ended up there. And to be completely honest, I didn't have a very sophisticated view of corporates right before I worked in one so I kind of thought they were a bit evil and I thought the people who worked there could be good but I wasn't really sure and so I was a little skeptical but I thought it would be a great experience and I'll see what it's like yeah. and I just re- literally had so many moments where I thought oh my gosh I never knew that this was possible to be mm. able to work in a role where it is really impact focused and scale focused but it's not necessarily the same tools that I always thought had to be used. Right, right. So, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess on a conceptual level. Do you have any examples? Yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely. So my role sits within the corporate, bigger corporate responsibility team at NAB. And so my role is specifically domestic and family violence and accessibility. So what the bank does in those two areas for our people, our customers and our community. So if I use the example of domestic and family violence, we have a really fantastic employee support policy. So we have uncapped paid leave for people impacted by family violence, which is pretty great for a corporate. And we also have leave for family members and immediate household members who want mm. to support someone who's going through it. Mm. So if I want to go with my friend to court or need to help them move, I can take paid leave for that. And we just have a huge range of support mm. for people. Mm. So there's that part of it. And then there's the customer support. So as you can probably imagine as a financial institution, we have a really, really unique role we can play because money is almost always a huge factor in domestic and family violence. And we are one of the only people who know what that really means in someone's bank account. So we have this amazing team that focus on hardship. It's this actually, um, they got featured in the Harvard Business Review as a case study because the whole team is a people-centered approach as opposed to a collections approach, which okay. it actually used to be. So what does those two things mean? Yeah, so collections is kind of debt collection. Okay, right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so it used to be called collections, mm. and then they had the most complaints of any of the big four banks. I think it was in 2012. And then they took a back step and said, something's not right here and we need to do better. So they actually worked with a lot of community organisations to understand what they were doing wrong. And what they really came up with was that when people aren't paying their credit card or their mortgage or that kind of thing, it's not because they don't want to, it's because generally there's other things happening in their life that they probably can't control. So whether it's unemployment or injury or family violence. Mm. And so in taking a people-centred approach, it's actually saying, well, what's really going on for you? Like, what... What's happening? And we now partner with a community organisation called Uniting Kildonan, and they have a program called Caring. So we partner directly with them and say, if you're going through something, we have social workers that you can connect with. Right. They can connect you with family violence workers. They can provide that extra support that as a bank we don't. We just, you know, we can't. We're not social workers. Mm-hmm. But we can be that connector to the support that people actually need. So that's one thing. We, for family violence, we can create a secret bank account for people 
that's not listed on internet banking, people can um, often send their mail to the branches. And then we also have tangible financial support. So when you think about, we've got about over 9 million customers in the country and about 33,000 employees. If we make one change that can better support people, that's a huge impact. And then that's not even the community philanthropy part of what we do. Okay. In 2017, we gave away $1.4 million in grants to domestic and family violence organisations doing innovative work. And that, I don't even know what $1.4 million looks like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's a huge amount that can contribute to what other people are doing, the really fantastic work they're doing, mm. that obviously we can't do. Mm. But we can be the accelerator for them doing that work. How do you think the experience has differed from, say, your role at a not-for-profit or advocacy group? It's both very different and very similar. I see my role in an advocacy social change space using different methods. So one method might be direct kind of political advocacy. So legislative change. One might be communications. So how do you talk about the change that you want to make happen? How do you get people to sign a petition or do a protest or change their behaviour? How do you create programs that have that behaviour change? And then for me now, it's how do we provide the opportunity and really the power and the money to Mm. make it a change happen just in a different way? And I think they all need to work together. Like It's very clear that it can't just be the government solving things or civil society Mm. or corporate so we actually all have to do it together and I think I was surprised to learn that more and more corporates understand that they have to play a bigger role in societal issues it's just it's not okay anymore to just make money which I think is great because why wouldn't we want to use as many resources as possible to solve the same issues I think a lot of people can have quite an aggressive view on CSR work in general yeah they might just say a lot of companies will do CSR work as more of a, you know, a marketing exercise. Mm-hmm. They're almost spending more money on telling people about the work they're doing than the actual work. What, what Has your experience been similar to that? Or when you've heard this or think about this, yeah. how do you kind of conceptualise things? So for me, I was definitely one of those people before I started doing it. And the way that I... And I can only speak from my... I've only yep. worked in one corporate responsibility job. Sure. So I think the kind of old school thinking about corporate responsibility was it was just philanthropy. So it was just donating money or giving grants. And now corporate responsibility is, for a lot of people, this understanding that you can do things that have a business impact and also are really contributing as a member of society. And then there's this whole new concept called shared value. Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, Yeah. but in case someone hasn't. Yeah, Yeah. in case someone hasn't. So shared value, and I'll be completely honest, I'm not an expert on it, is really how you can make good business and do societal good at the same time. So I'll give you an example. So the hardship team that I mentioned before who do a lot of that people-centred work, that's actually a shared value initiative where by focusing more on the person and the deeper issues of what's going on, you know, making accommodations that wouldn't necessarily be traditional business operations, actually save that section $70 million in a year. Because 
about 90% of people within the first 30 days of needing a, you know, an accommodation or a pause or something on their repayments went back into paying just like normal. And so it can make really good business sense and also be really good for society at the mm. same time. And that's, ideally, you'd have philanthropy, corporate responsibility and shared values at the same time mm. because just one isn't the solution. And so shared responsibility also should be self-perpetuating. So it's not, oh, if the money from a donator runs out, it won't keep going. Yeah. It should actually just be business that also has a good impact. So I have another example. Go for it. Helpful. So NAB's been partnering with Good Shepherd Microfinance since 2003. Something that I didn't know before, I worked there, but it's something that I think is so amazing. And so... Microfinance is, for those who don't know. Yeah, so microfinance is giving capital to people or allowing people who wouldn't normally have access to capital yeah. that funding. Mm. So it would be people who kind of fall beneath the, in between the cracks of traditional lending. So it might be someone who maybe wants to get a loan of $1,500 to buy a computer for uni or fix their car or something like that, but you can't actually borrow that through a bank. It's, it's mm. too small an amount of money. Or maybe they don't meet the kind of income requirements of a usual bank. So what Good Shepherd Microfinance does is provide the capital money to those people in a way that is either no interest, so they have no interest loans, or very low interest loans. And then when people... there's Generally, it's like 12 to 18 month repayment rate as well. And so when people pay it back, they actually pay it back into a pool of money mm. that then goes to fund other loans. So it's kind of continues to perpetuate. And... So the way that shared value is with Good Shepherd Microfinance, they, in partnership with NAB, have launched something called Speckle, which is very fast cash loans for up to, I think it's about $2,000, yes? And in a way that people can access that finance with pretty reasonable interest rates and repayment rates instead of going to a payday lender. Yeah. Yep. So there are still interest rates, mm. so it's not you know, no interest, but it solves this, it makes business sense mm. and it also solves this societal issue of, you know, not needing to go to a payday lender or not mm. needing to use afterpay and then pay these outrageous kind of penalty rates mm. and that kind of thing mm. in a way that it doesn't ideally just keep going and going. Yep. Yeah. One more question with the, the CSR. In terms of CSR having a seat at the table... Uh, within an organisation, mm. you talked about shared value, yeah. and the cynic might say, "Okay, look, that just means you just—we have to justify impact for work because it helps the bottom line, rather than <laughs> rather than it's you know beneficial for society." Sure. And people might say, "Look at a, say a bank as a whole, mm. and think, okay, it's great you're doing this CSR work, mm. but." What about, you know, the way you're structuring your home loans mm. or the way you're marketing your products, yeah. not telling people about all the information um, when they sign up for something? Obviously, there's a Royal Commission going on in Australia at the moment. Royal Commission, uh, basically, I don't know how to explain it, but the government decides that there's a big problem in a certain industry and they spend a lot of money and time investigating it. And there's a lot of people who come and testify and it's a big process. That's happened in Australia recently with the big banks. And there was a lot of stuff that came out, which wasn't quite too savoury. And yeah, just with that in mind, if you're sitting at the CSR table and doing all this work, is it 
a question of, okay, how can we change this on a systems level with the entire organisation as well? I get where you're coming from. Yeah. And what I'll say is I'm answering this as me, an employee who works at the bank, and granted someone who hasn't worked in a bank for that long compared yeah. to other people. So I... Have you heard of this term of intrapreneurs? I have, but... So entrepreneurs are kind of changing the world generally through business. And intrapreneurs are trying to change from within yep. a business. And so I don't know about other corporate responsibility teams, but we absolutely see ourselves as entrepreneurs within the banks or advocates or kind of the people who are encouraging others to make the change. And so... You know, a lot of the things that came out through the Royal Commission, for me personally, were really shocking. And I think for a lot of people were as well. When you think of a bank, it's like this big corporation. Mm, right? It's actually mm. just made up of 33,000 people, some of whom I pass in the lunchroom. They're like, like any large group of people, they'll, mm. most people will be doing the right thing and there'll be some people who won't. And so it's really about understanding and being very transparent about what isn't working and what needs to happen to make a change. And I can say personally as like a, a whole team of people working for change that it's something that is a big focus at the moment. It's always been a focus for us. It's something that is a focus, big focus at the moment mm. internally. And it's really about kind of what are we going to do next? And like I said... I'm not a spokesperson for now, but yeah. I'm just talking yeah. as an employee. <laughs> I think it's it's really about having people, not just within corporate responsibility who are mm. entrepreneurs, but throughout every organisation. And entrepreneurs, like one of my friends is an entrepreneur in a government department. Right. And it's so surprising how many similar things happen mm. when you get a bunch of people together and you give them <laughs> some structures and some policy documents and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you always need those people who are going to be pushing the envelope for good as opposed mm. to I'm not going to say anything because I might rock the boat. So awesome. And that's why I love my job. Um, in terms of just finishing up, it's yeah. a question we ask everyone. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add given, you know, you speak to a bunch of young people interested in yeah. making a difference? And also, are there any books or films that you would recommend mm. for young people making an impact or want to make yeah. a difference? You mentioned a few, we'll put those yeah. in. So, yeah. So, as a seedling of an organisation, um, I would love your support for Yes Get It. So on Instagram we're at yes.get.it and you can just search us on Facebook as cool. well. And I think what I truly believe is in the power of kind of communication and vulnerability and reflection. And so my recommendation is going to be every single Brene Brown <laughs> that's out there is amazing. Yeah. I also think there's a real value in fiction. I know it's like maybe not as cool anymore to, yeah. <laughs> to read. I mean, you can't be just reading self-help or non-fiction. Like, <laughs> that's not healthy. Books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you can do that. Um, but, you know, I grew up reading Harry Potter and, like, the way that you use your imagination and, like, stories are so mm. powerful and beautiful. We can mm. we learn through stories, mm. right, as mm. people. Mm. And so I would encourage everyone to just get into stories yeah. and be okay with them. And then podcasts. Listen to this podcast. <laughs> but one of my favorite podcasts is called How I Built This. Yeah. Which is a TED podcast. And it's just, they perfectly, it's a mix of storytelling mm. and then 
business and social entrepreneurship and lessons you can learn. Mm. So for me, mm. it fulfills all the things that I love about kind of creative things. That's a good one. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thanks, Helen. Really appreciate it. Thanks.